Good morning. So today we are finishing our teaching series we've been in that's entitled Faithful Presence. It's been a journey through the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. And we've tracked these four Hebrew slaves that are serving as advisors by four. They're forced to serve as advisors in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four. And today we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 3, the last few verses, to see the impact that these four slaves have made over the course of their lives on those in power at the time. Okay? So we're going to bring the scripture passage up here and I invite you to follow along and listen to God's word to us all today as we finish chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would teach us and mold us and shape us about the lives we live and how we live them. We pray that we would hear your voice, all of us, no matter how we walk in here. You would speak to us and that we would leave here different than how we walked in. This can only be done through the power of your spirit. So we ask that you would work. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable that four slaves forced to work as advisors in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar have such an influence on the king and on the Babylonian empire that there is this amazing proclamation that the king says that this must be followers of the one true God. And you think about that, people with no social standing, no political power, none of it, that they are able to have this kind of impact and this kind of influence. And the reason we've been looking at this is that this is maybe something that can serve as a template for all of us in our lives and in Austin, Texas here today. Because they are what James Davison Hunter would write about and say are a faithful presence. That is, what does it mean to be a Christian or a person of faith at a time and place where you are a distinct minority? How do we do that? And that is the case for all of us here today. It is not normal for people to wake up in Austin, Texas and think about going to church on Sunday morning. That's not, like, keeping Austin weird, you you are doing that today, right? People are like, yeah, I don't really kind of get by into that kind of stuff. That's normal. That's the mainstream now. That's not weird. Weird is what we are doing here. And so what does it mean to not see that as a bad thing, to not be frightened of that, to not be scared of that, but to say this is the story at times of how God's people have had to operate as a minority and a majority culture is going, we really don't want to listen to you. And so how do we function in that way? How do we operate that way? How do you and I do that? That's what James Davis and Hunter says is, is, is a faithful presence. And that's what we see going on here in Daniel. Now, what Hunter says is that we, that we have to understand that in the church in America today, that the church in America, just like in politics in America today, that the voice of the church has become dominated by the extremes, by the kind of almost fringe elements. And Hunter says that we need to see that because that's the majority culture's 
perception of Christianity. He says that the extremes on the one hand are that we set ourselves up as Christians as over and against the culture. The culture's bad, it's moral decay, it's on a slippery slope, we don't want to be, uh, have that impurity brought in near us. We don't want to kind of be around that. And so we don't want our children to get, to get polluted by it. We don't want our grandchildren to get polluted by it. So what we do is we build really big walls between us and the culture. It's kind of a circle the wagons bunker mentality, right? And then what we do is we have these really big walls that we create around, around ourselves to keep us safe from the culture. And then every once in a while, we lob hand grenades over the walls and let it explode in the culture around us in these, these kind of pronouncements of self-righteousness. And then we go, why does no one want to be a part of us, <laughs> right? And Hunter says, not only is that not effective, but he says it's not biblical. He says that God sent Jesus into the world because God so loved the world. That Jesus didn't stand apart from the culture and go, hey, don't come near me and don't pollute me. Jesus walked into the world seeking to love the world and through that love to transform the world. So he said, so it's a bad understanding of our biblical call. But that exists on this one fringe. Now, the other fringe and the other extreme is on the whole opposite side. And Hunter says that in many ways it might be a reaction to that bunker mentality. And it's this. It's like, as Christians, we're just like you. He says it's, 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 the, it's the voice of assimilation. We just want to assimilate into the culture. There's nothing distinct about us. There's nothing weird about us. We're just trying to be nice people. God's given us some rules. You're trying to be nice people over there. As long as you're nice in your way and we're nice in our way, then everyone gets along. We're normal. We go to football games. We go to concerts. We're just like the rest of you. We're not weird. We're not different. We're not lobbing those hand grenades. And Hunter goes, that's not effective either. Why would anyone want to wake up on Sunday morning to hear that? And that's not biblical. That Jesus wasn't killed because he was just the most swell guy the world had ever seen. And that Paul writes that you and I are called to shine like stars in the midst of the generation around us. That doesn't happen when you're just trying to fit in with everyone else. So Hunter says that these two extremes have started to dominate the Christian narrative and that we've got to find a new way. That Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they found a different way of living out their faith as the minority in the culture around them. And Hunter talks about this as being a faithful presence. What he says lies at the core of that, and what we've talked about, is that we have to be able to color outside the lines in our life. Because what we're taught as Christians is that like, there's separation of church and state. And so what we have to do is, we don't, no one really understands what that means. That's one of the most misquoted things in the world, separation of church and state. But people throw it out, and what that means is, we, we're supposed to keep religion in our private life right? And then when in the public life, you talk a different way and you act a different way because that's the real world, right? And the real world and work and what we do in our workplace, that doesn't function like what we talked about in Sunday school class. So to live in the real world, you have to talk a different language and you have to have a different set of values. And then over here is kind of how I raise my kids. And over here is kind of how I'm a neighbor. And over here is what I do with my friends when I get together with my, my buddies from college and what we do. And that's nothing like what we talked about in Sunday school class. But that's okay because that's over here. And then I still go to Sunday school and then do that. I have these neatly compartmentalized parts of life. And Hunter says, no, 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 no. What we have to do is color outside the lines. We have to understand that we're called to live holistically, not with these different versions of ourselves and based on the setting. We're not called to be a chameleon that just fits in wherever we, we kind of find our background, but that we're called to be different. That's why we started this series, if you were here, by having Ross Baird come and we did a dialogue sermon together. If you were here, you remember Ross started a venture capital fund 
and it's taken off and it's become very successful and he's investing in the, around this country and around the world helping entrepreneurs and, and, and many different people who don't have access to capital to start businesses. And it's, it's become this thing. He's released a book. He's spoken at South by the last few years. And every time he does it, Ross says that he has people who are going, man, how you do this fund, it's so different and it, it, and it, and it's, and it operates differently. Like, where did you come up with this great idea? And he's like, it's from Deuteronomy. Right? It's like because we thought about what does the Bible say about money and the power dynamics that go with that and how do we translate that into economics and people are like, no, 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 Bible, venture capitalism, don't do two different worlds, don't blend them. He's like, no, that's what we did. And they're like, no, don't say that. When you're interviewed at South By and you got a thousand people there who want to know about this cool thing, say that you came up with this really great idea. He's like, that's not that what happened, right? Is that we, we actually tried to take biblical principles of money and apply it and then just open it up to people and it's taking off and it's not a, but it's not, a, it doesn't have the Christian label on it anywhere. People are like, that makes me uncomfortable. Is it a Christian thing or is it not? As Ross told me afterwards, he's like, I tend to offend both church people and people who don't go to church. <laughs> the church people are like, no, 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 it needs to be Christian. And the non-church people are like, don't say that word. And so, like, no one's really happy with it. It's coloring outside the lines. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me to live this holistic existence where we ask the question, what are the values that I'm called to embody in all parts of my life? And today, as we wrap this series up, I want to go a little further in talking about the intersection of how this faithful presence and living holistically how that works in the realm of politics and faith. Because it would be disingenuous of us to not go there. Because for three chapters, Daniel has been serving as an advisor to the king. He's dwelling in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all dwelling in the realm of intersecting how does my faith blend in with my politics and, and how we govern. Now, I know in our political climate, especially today, the moment we say this, there's a good percentage of you going, don't do this. Don't go there because it's just going to cause divisions and this is my place to come where I don't have to think about that for a little while. And I get that. As many of you know, I was part of our church's mission trip to Cuba for eight days. I had no access to the internet. Trust me, I did not miss not knowing the headlines for eight days. We live in a toxic time right now. But we don't have the option of just burying our heads in the sand and waiting for it to go away. And there is a call, I believe, a distinct call to you and I. And so I want to extrapolate a little bit from Daniel, who lives in that world, to what might a faithful presence be in our world today, in this politically poisonous environment, with great social divisions that are bubbling up every day. And I want you to know from the beginning that I'm not so much going to approach this based on any one current event, so much as what I see as more of an underlying cause that's making us struggle with whatever the event of the day is. And the thing that I want us to name, and the thing that I want us to think about what our faith has to do with in our political climate, is the increasing number of people in our country who do not believe that their voices are being heard. I believe that if you look at the root cause of why we struggle with so many different things, this is one of the primary causes of what's going on. And I believe that there is a distinct call on you and I as followers of Jesus to respond in that. Now, what do I mean by that? That, that one of the root causes is that there are increasing numbers of people whose voices don't think they're being heard. Let me give you an example. 
Some research came out recently by the Pew Report that does studies, and one of the things they found is that there's, over the last decade, some very real trends going on in American politics. Now, you might hear these, and it might not surprise you. For instance, some of those trends are that in the last decade, there's less and less people who say that they are moderate in the middle. There's more and more people who are identifying ideologically as either conservative or liberal than ever before. It used to be that there was kind of more of a, of, a, of a mesh there. Now it's that more and more people are saying, I am ideologically conservative or I am ideologically liberal. Now, for both liberals and conservatives, there's not a lot of satisfaction with the parties that are in place. It's not about Democrat and Republican, but it's about ideologically more and more people, for example, are saying, I see the world as a conservative through a conservative lens, and that's kind of how I view things. And there are more and more people who are saying, no, 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 I view the world fundamentally through a liberal lens, right, or a progressive lens, and that's how I view the world. Now, what's fascinating is while this has happened, is while we have been drawing up more on our sides, both sides accuse the other of the same thing. Now, this is fascinating, okay? Listen to this. So what the conservatives are saying is that they are saying in increasing numbers that liberals are guilty of certain things. They don't listen, they're out of touch, and that their vision for things is increasingly harmful to what it means to be America. At the exact same moment, the increasing number of liberals are saying conservatives don't listen, they're out of touch, and what they are gunning for is not helpful for the future of America. We're drawing further and further apart, we're getting more and more separated, and yet our frustrations are the same. As one sociologist puts it, that we're in a time today where everyone's talking and no one's listening. Because what happens when you get on your side and you see things differently is we have 24-hour news and we have blog sites that just reinforce our point of view. So if you don't feel like people are listening, whether whoever's in power or not, you have tons of people in media that are looking at you going, you're right, your voice isn't listened to. You're right, you don't have a voice in this. And let me tell you who to blame, it's those folks over there. And we're like, yeah, it's those folks over there. While at the same moment, these folks are going, you're right. It's those people over there who, who have the voice and they have the power and, and everyone doesn't listen to me. Everybody's talking and no one's listening. I know you wrote a great thing on Facebook that you posted that changed your life. Here's the deal. No one read it. And it didn't change anyone's mind. Everyone's talking and no one's listening. Is that a big deal? Oh my gosh, it's a big deal. Take it out of the realm of politics. Put this in the realm of marriage or friendship or parents and children relating. Often what happens when relationships get really hard, often what happens is one of the core things going on is that one or both people are feeling like that they're not being listened to by the other, right? She's not listening to me, he's not listening to me, they don't value my opinions, they just kind of talk over me and everything else. Now, in my marriage, that works great. Beth loves it when we're in a conflict and I'm like, yeah, but you're just wrong, and here's why. That is a recipe for joy in my life, whenever that happens, right? No, like you can learn all like the different, you can go on date nights and everything else. If your spouse doesn't feel listened to, if your friends don't feel heard by you, you will continue to bump into problems all the time. It is a foundational issue. Do we feel heard? Do our voices feel valued? 
And when we don't, we're filled with resentment, we're filled with anger, and we can't hear anything that's coming out of the other side. That's what's taking place if you blow that up on kind of a national level right now. So something happens like Las Vegas, and what we do is we see that and we go, I know what's gonna happen. This group over here is gonna get really fired up and they're gonna start posting things on Facebook and they're gonna have their talking points. And this group over here is gonna get really fired up and they're gonna start talking about certain things and they're gonna get people all lathered up and nothing will change. Nothing will change. That's what's so discouraging to me. There will always be hard issues. We are struggling to be able to even talk about it. Why? Because people don't feel heard. And into that vacuum comes the church. If you and I are called to be anything, you and I are called to be people who are amazing at listening. We are called to be amazing at listening because to listen to another viewpoint, what political pundits talk about is tolerance. We need to hear the voices on the other side. Tolerance is not the same thing. People know when you're just tolerating them. It's one thing to listen to someone in order to argue with them. It's another thing to listen in order to learn. Those are two different things. Tolerance is listening in order to argue. Christians are uniquely equipped, if we take our faith seriously, to actually have humility. And because as Christians, if we take our faith seriously, you and I exist in a tension every day. Every day we exist in a tension. And the tension is this, is that on the one hand, you and I are called to have values that we are passionate about, things that the Bible calls us to, issues that we hold very passionately and close to our hearts. And yet at the same time, in the same moment as Christians, one of the things that is most core to our faith that we profess is that God is God and we are not God. And so as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, that means that you and I see in a mirror dimly. And that's not just on the things you feel wishy-washy about. That could be on anything. So what does that mean? Well, for me, and I've shared this before, I believe that someday I'll be face-to-face with the Lord. And as I'm face-to-face with the Lord, and as Paul writes, we'll see fully, I think part of what that means is the Lord's going to look at me and say, man, you talked a lot. Um... You have a lot of opinions. You, 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 you did a whole lot of things, and some of that was really great and was awesome, and I'm excited. <laughs> some of it you really missed the boat on. And you're like, well, like what? And it's like, well, this and this and this, and you're like, no, 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 no. That last one, that one I felt really good about, right? The other two I felt wishy-washy on, so yeah, maybe I was wrong, but that one was really clear. That one I like felt really good about. It was really obvious as a Christian what I'm supposed to believe, and I think the Lord's going to look at me and go, I know, you really, really were passionate about that, and you really missed the boat. We see in a mirror dimly. So you and I as Christians are uniquely in this culture where everyone's talking and no one's listening. You and I should be amazing listeners because there should be, if we take our faith seriously, humility built into our DNA. Because we constantly are living in a world where we're supposed to espouse values and constantly realize that we may be wrong. What would it mean in this political climate today if we didn't avoid conversations on politics, if we didn't sit there and go, I just don't want to deal with it, 
What would it mean if we move towards those conversations? But as we have them, our goal is not to speak so much as listen. What would it mean if in those conversations, our goal is that the other voice felt heard and valued? What if we said, if nothing else, that's how I'm going to walk away from this person is going to know that their voice matters. I'm going to listen and pay attention, not to tolerate them, not have a sense of inclusivity, which means nothing. But because the voice of God may be so big that I'm going to learn truth in the most unexpected of places. What if that's how we lived today? Now, you might sit there and go, man, that is some ivory tower thinking. Uh, let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya and like maybe everything gets better. And maybe you're right. But I want to give you an example as we close of the difference it can make. Uh, as many of you know, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I, when I was started, I think I was 13, my parents, who didn't go to church much, said, when we go, if you don't want to go anymore, you don't have to. And I was like, thrilled, won't go anymore, excited not to go anymore, and I didn't. Uh, and yet I came to faith um, nine years later, 11 years later, and I'm not a math major. Uh, after, after college, at age 24, I became a Christian. It's weird when you grow up in a family where people don't go to church, and then you say, hey, not only am I a Christian, but I'm thinking about going to seminary, because there's no one really sitting there going, oh my gosh, this is what we've always wanted for you, right? Like, nobody said that at all. The way that my family, who loved me, and it's, you know, I mean, and I know that they love me, it was kind of like... Um, when I was eight and said I was going to be an NBA player, right? Like when I was eight and said I'm going to play professional basketball, and they're like, okay, that's, that's great. You know, you go work that out. When I said I was going to seminary and considering ministry, it was sort of the same thing. It's like, all right, that's great. We'll let, let you work that out, and then you'll get a real job, you know, doing something. Um, and I think at some level they may still be waiting for me to get a real job, <laughs> like before. To, it's like, so what are you going to do with your life, right? The one person who was decidedly different in that was my grandfather, my mother's father. And what was weird about that is he didn't go to church either. But he was incredibly supportive of me going. And I was like, you know, is it because you have this secret faith that you didn't talk about and you don't go to church? He's like, no, I don't believe any of that stuff. I'm like, is it because I'm incredibly witty and you just like me a lot and so you're going to support me no matter what I do? He's like, you're not actually all that funny. <laughs> so, so what is it? He said, well, it's because if you want to know, I've seen the impact that a pastor can have to change a city. My grandfather, as some of you, I've spoken about him once before, um, you may remember, was a business leader in Atlanta. He, after World War II and after he served in the Navy, he uh, took over a very small construction company in, in Atlanta. And at the time, Atlanta was not the international city that it is today. It was actually on par with a lot of other cities in the Southeast at the time. And, and it was in the 50s and 60s that Atlanta kind of took off in the Southeast and became a different city. I grew up on the history of Atlanta. You're just going to have to bear with me for like the next two minutes, okay? You might not be interested in this. There is a point coming, maybe. He took over a construction company, and in, when a city takes off, a construction industry is a great place to have your business, and so they did really well. My grandfather got very involved in civic and political affairs, and he became, in the early 60s, the president of the Chamber of Commerce of Atlanta. Now, the 60s were an interesting time to be the president of the Chamber of Commerce of a southern city. 
Because one of the things that happened is that as the civil rights movement was blowing up around the country, but certainly in the South, when investors and businesses would see what was taking place in southern cities like Birmingham with like Bull Connor and fire hoses and dogs, investment in those cities would go down. No one would want to invest there. People would look at it and say, oh, I don't want to put business there. We don't want our business to move there. And so a lot of southern cities didn't grow very much after those times. And so Atlanta business leaders looked at that and they said, we don't want that to happen. So they took steps. One of them was they had a slogan for the city that was Atlanta, the city too busy to hate which I used to tease my grandfather about. Because it's like, it's not that we don't hate you. We're just too busy to hate you. <laughs> if we took the time to think about you, we actually might hate you. But we just can't be bothered to think about you at all. The city too busy to hate. But at the time, they're like, we're enlightened, and that's awesome, and it's great. But they knew that a slogan wasn't going to be enough to deal with the very real racial issues that existed. And one day my grandfather found out about some pastors in Atlanta who had started what they called listening sessions on Saturday mornings at a community center in the city. And at the time, they had tried to hope that this would take off in the city, but like most church initiatives of this kind, there were like eight people who were really excited about social justice and no one else was there. But my grandfather heard about it, and one of the pastors was a friend and invited him to come, and eventually he came, and he goes, Thomas, it was amazing. It was the first time I'd heard from, from uh, African-American leadership where they just got to talk to me and I heard about their experience and I heard about what was going on and I had to listen to that and then I was able to express some different things. And I left there and it was really hard and it was really difficult, but I said, man, someone needs to go back and we need to get the police commissioner there because there's obviously some issues going on there. And so the next week the police commissioner came and then after that he invited the mayor, Ivan Allen, to come and Ivan Allen started showing up and then more and more of the business leadership started coming and some of the business leadership of the African-American community started showing up in more numbers. And he said that it was pretty amazing because Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, the most powerful and influential people in business and politics gathered without anybody knowing about it in this one little community rec center in Atlanta. And for about a decade, they met and had listening sessions. My grandfather said it was at that point that our city took off where other southern cities didn't. And he said, if you want to ask me what was maybe the most single significant thing that kept us from blowing apart, it was those Saturday morning listening sessions. And my grandfather wasn't saying that as a church person. He was saying it as a business leader. And that's where the city began to flourish. What would it mean in our day and age if we took that posture again? What would it mean if we move towards the conflict that exists in our families and in our relationships with the intent of listening before we speak? What would it mean if we had the faith and the fortitude to believe that hearing the voice of others can influence the way we live and that in hearing them we just might hear the voice of God? Because the other option is you just keep posting things on Facebook and knowing in your self-righteous circle of truth that you see it better than anybody else. Is that God? Is that where he is? 
What would it mean in this area as we saw a faithful presence of four Hebrew slaves that changed the heart of a king and changed the trajectory of an empire? What would it mean in the witness of my grandfather, a business person, about the power of listening to other voices led by Christians who had the faith to do that? What would it mean in Austin, Texas today? I tell you now, we could change this world. Now, it won't be fast, and it won't be done over social media. It's going to have to be face-to-face. It's going to have require patience. It's going to require endurance. But here's the deal. There is no quick fix to where we are today. This isn't going away, our political, social climate in the next few months. We are in this for a while. And by being faithful, I believe that we can change our world again because God can use us to do so. This is our call. You don't have to wait for a politician or a pastor to help you do it. You start now. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would lead us in this, that you would use us, because on our own, we don't have the power to change the world, but your Holy Spirit can use us to do so. In this culture where everyone's talking and no one's listening, may we have the strength and the faith and the fortitude to be different, knowing that that might be the beginning point of people hearing and experiencing your love and the world changing forever. We thank you for the witness of scripture that this is possible and pray that you would use us again. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.